Hello and welcome. I am Mahana Sar, non-resident fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm also a member of Ashebeka, the Palestinian Policy Network, and an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. Today is February 27th, 2023, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our webinar, Normalization and Peacemaking as Discourses of Violence. Today's webinar is the third in a webinar series organized jointly by FMAP and Ashabaka titled Learning and Unlearning Palestine. Stay tuned at the end of today's conversation where we'll be telling you about our final installment in this series. Yesterday, senior diplomats and security officials from the US, the Palestinian Authority, Israel, Jordan, and Egypt met at the Jordanian Red Sea Resort of Aqaba for regional talks. The statement that they issued afterwards affirmed that Israel and the Palestinians, quote, affirmed their commitment to all previous agreements between them and to work towards a just and lasting peace. They reaffirmed the necessity of committing to de-escalation on the ground and to prevent further violence, unquote. The statement came after yet another week of deadly violence in the West Bank. Last Wednesday, the Israeli army invaded the West Bank city of Nablus killing 11 people and wounding over 100. Over the weekend, a Palestinian gunman killed two Israeli settlers in the Northern West Bank. And shortly thereafter, Israeli settlers rampaged through Hawara and three other Palestinian villages near Nablus, where they burned and vandalized at least 200 buildings and set ablaze hundreds of cars and homes. Israeli forces and settlers also shot and killed a 37-year-old Sameh Akhtash in the village of Zatara, and more than 300 Palestinians were wounded in the rampage. The disconnect between official statements and events on the ground couldn't be more stark. As we approach the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords, we want to examine how the language of peace, dialogue, and normalization have been used to undermine the Palestinian liberation movement. I'm delighted today to be joined by two experts on today's topic who have written and thought a lot about these discourses in the Palestinian-Israeli context. We have with us today Inas Abderraza, Executive Director of the Palestinian Institute for Public Diplomacy, or PIPD, an independent Palestinian organization she joined in 2019, working on Palestinian international campaigning. Ines is also an advisory board member of, social, of the social enterprise Build Palestine and a policy member of Ashabaka. Dr. Yara Hawari is the senior analyst of Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. She completed her PhD in Middle East politics at the University of Exeter, where she's taught various courses and continues to be an honorary research fellow. In addition to her academic work, uh, Yara has focused on, which has focused on indigenous studies and oral history. Yara is also a frequent political commentator, writing for various media outlets, including The Guardian, Foreign Policy, and Al Jazeera English. So let's begin with a brief overview of the language we'll be talking about. We often hear that there are clashing narratives when it comes to how Palestinians and Israelis talk about the root causes and possible solutions to the current conditions. For over a century, Palestinians have embraced what we can call the justice narrative. 
This narrative reflects Palestinians' experiences of Zionism as a settler colonial movement that has sought to remove native Palestinians from their homeland, often through violent means. Palestinians' justice narrative sees Israel and the Zionist project as sharing many of the same traits as other colonial movements and therefore needs to be resisted accordingly. The only way, according to the justice narrative, to achieve Palestinian liberation is to dismantle the structures of oppression embedded into the Israeli state, to transform the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians from one of oppressor and oppressed into one of full equality among all. In contrast to the justice narrative is what we might call the peace narrative, which is held by many supporters of Israel. It claims that the Zionists came to Palestine peacefully in order to establish a Jewish state in their ancestral homeland, and that Arabs should choose to live in peace with them. And that's the only way to achieve peace. Many of the normalization projects associated with the Abraham Accords come out of this narrative. A related iteration of the peace narrative, common in Western media and policy circles, frames, the Israeli frames Israeli-Palestinian relations as a conflict between two national groups, each of whom claims the same land. The solution, therefore, is for both sides to arrive at a compromise through peaceful dialogue and negotiations. The Oslo Accords, and frankly, the statements out of Aqaba this weekend, stem from this narrative. All right, so with that background, let's go ahead and turn to our discussion. Yara, let's start with you. I think many people take for granted the idea that peace, and I'm putting them in air quotes here, that peace ought to be the overriding goal in resolving the so-called conflict, again in air quotes, between Israelis and Palestinians. But peace has come to have very different connotations for Palestinians, especially for Palestinians living under Israel's apartheid regime. So what has shaped the Western and Israeli discourse of peace, especially since the signing of the Oslo Accords? Maha, thanks for, for asking that, that question to start us off with. And um, um, for setting the context of what's been happening in Palestine this week, it's really a timely notion to talk about peace in air quotes and, and, and what it means for Palestinians. And I, I think, first of all, we need to get rid of the notion of uh, that what is happening in Palestine is a conflict. This is an ongoing century-old settler colonization project. And the antidote to a colonization project is always decolonization. So peace in this kind of context applies that you want both sides to stop fighting. In other words, for the colonized people to stop resisting. And then within this peace discourse, there's also the idea that contact and, and dialogue are the way to end the violence and, and thus the, the so-called conflict. And this creates a, a false parallel between the structural oppression of the uh, Israeli uh, occupiers and the justified resistance of the oppressed Palestinians. And that's why I think that most people, not just in, in Palestine, but also in the global south, have a, you know, a very different understanding of the word peace to, let's say, the, the mainstream Western understanding of the word. The thing that, that I personally think of when I hear the word peace in Palestine is capitulation, uh, containment, continued oppression, um, etc. And I think it's, it's probably the case for many who are fighting similar um, struggles against colonialism uh, and oppression. But let's look at how the word is used, particularly in Palestine. We always hear it as being sort of framed that Israelis are entitled to peace and security or that there are calls for peace at times of heightened violence. 
uh, all of these, of course, in, in air quotes. Um, and definitely for the, the Israeli regime, what they mean by peace is that Palestinians no longer resist their erasure. Rather, they just lie down passively and accept that they'll slowly be erased from their historical homeland. And I think a more Western understanding of peace in this case is that Palestinians stop being a thorn in their side. They stop reminding them that they're hypocrites and they stop reminding them that their international rules-based order is a facade. Um, you know, notice that the, whenever we hear uh, Western mainstream actors talking about peace, none of this ever includes redress, uh, repatriation, restitution. It doesn't talk about justice. It's more about Palestinians accepting uh, the, their reality that they live in. And now your point about Oslo as this sort of time marker, I think is an important one because it did shift the discourse on peace. It started what is called the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And it's what most foreign politicians or diplomats refer to when they talk of peace. They refer to it as a framework. But if you look at what Oslo did to the Palestinian people, the Oslo Accords, it was incredibly violent. And I think people don't want to accept that. They criticize the parties that were involved and blame the parties involved uh, for its failure rather than the framework itself. But the Oslo framework was deeply flawed from the beginning. And I think it was designed uh, to be flawed because it was premised on this very uh, problematic notion of peace. Thank you for that. And I think we'll be talking kind of throughout about that framework and why it's so problematic. Uh, Ines, let me turn to you. The Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy, which you direct, has a really helpful guide for journalists called 10 Things to Remember When Reporting on Palestine. And we'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes. Reading through it, I was struck by how much of the problematic language used by Western journalists today is actually an outcome of this peace framework that Yara just talked about. So how do you see this peace framework affecting media depictions of Palestinian realities? Thank you, Maha, and uh, thank you uh, all for having me. I'm sorry, I have a very bad cold, so I'm, I'm half deaf and also no, with a nosy voice. Um, yeah, I think the, well, I think the way that the, the media depicts the situation um, goes hand in hand with the way also international diplomacy reacts to events. And I think we've seen that in the past two days. Um, I think it's very clear, uh, as Yara said, I think the, the, the creation of the peace process itself um, is I think part of why we are here today and why the discourse is as it is in the Western media and in Western uh, you know, foreign chancelleries. Um, the the what the what the peace process created is indeed like equating two parties. And so I think while for many years, actually in decades, uh, UN resolutions and even like uh, the regional dynamics and I think Palestinian resistance, all of that was seen through a certain lens. And I think the way to advance was very clearly seen as, you know, and the occupation and the right to return of refugees, the peace process really transformed that uh, into making uh, one believe that this is, again, uh, just a dispute between two equal parties uh, that need to go around the table and negotiate. And I think from there, um, you know, then unrolls uh, how things are are playing right now. And, and, and the problem is that 
by equating the two parties, um, there is a, a deeply problematic equation of uh, the violence of the oppressed with the uh, the violence, the systemic violence that never stops of the occupation of the Israeli apartheid regime. And I think it's um, this is this is I think what we're you know trying to uh, constructively I think uh, you know uh, show to the to the media that um, I think the the idea that you can just put in parallel like an Israeli official government voice and you know a Palestinian citizens uh, next to each other is is violent in itself um, and so I think there um, was very important to, to I think st start with when we think about uh, the way we think about peace is um, peace is not the absence of armed violence and I think this is what today uh, it has come to be understood here um, and so in the past two days what we've seen is you know the United States and and European countries uh, going with the same uh, talking points over and over again to ask for de-escalating the violence and ask for a return to calm uh, which again is only means, um, you know, for them it means peace, but actually what it means is absence of violence for the dominant, uh, whereas the violence towards the, the, the dominated, the Palestinians, will continue and continues every single day in different forms, right? Whether it's the, the bureaucratic, the humiliation, the, uh, the arrests and the kill to, to, to the killing. Um, and I think it's it's what I think is is what we need to deconstruct is that constant uh, you know equation of of uh, oppressed and oppressor, and it's something that uh, is deeply entrenched. And I think we have to to deconstruct because um, we can't put you know our context that Yara explained within the peace building framework, and. You know, this weekend I was I was in in, in an international feminist conference um, in Madrid, and a lot of was talked about like how war is bad for people and how we want peace. And I was very shocked that you know how um, this seems so evident for everyone that yes, women need to be involved in peace, etc. Um, but in fact, you know, uh, a few I think like uh, some Kurdish comrades and and myself reminded that you know. You can't. Um, I think you, you can't apply that that framework uh, within a, a context where the conflict is not resolved. And I know we don't want to call it a conflict, but where, let's say, the injustice and everything that you can call a very asymmetrical and unjust um, um, struggle or conflict is not, uh, you know, resolved in terms of rights, in terms of, of justice. Um, and so this way, they, there can be no real peace, only pacification. Thank you for that. So what I'm hearing from both of you is that this peace discourse and peace being defined as an absence of violence towards Israelis. What that does, though, is that it erases or ignores the constant structural and, and very um, physical violence towards Palestinians that comes through the occupation, that comes through Israel's settler colonial regime. 
so that am I missing anything or is that is that a good kind of summary? I would say an absence of Palestinian resistance. I think that's what, okay. you know, when we're talking about uh, peace, that's what the majority of, you know, Israelis or sort of Western narratives mean. They mean that there is no Palestinian resistance to the ongoing violent structure of, of oppression. Perfect. Thank you. So then let's turn to this the sort of related discussion, which is about dialogue. So peace is supposed to come through negotiations and dialogue. And I want to turn back to you, Inas. So many international NGOs and other groups sponsor dialogue projects between Israelis and Palestinians. I remember these being very popular back in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, and there's been a bit of a renewed effort to bring them back today. So what is the notion behind dialogue here? And how is, has this understanding of dialogue worked to advance Israeli settler colonial project. Yeah, well, indeed. So these projects that really emerged and, and flourished after the Oslo Accords, again, I think they completely erase the uh, colonial and, and domination nature of the system we live in. And they're going back to using emotion and empathy as something that would actually uh, change the structural nature of the injustice and, and the absence of rights, you know, and the denial of Palestinian rights. Um, which means that um, eventually they're problematic in themselves because when you have, uh, you know, an Israeli and a Palestinian, let's say young person or uh, two, um, you know, grieving mothers, um, again, their, uh, their grief or their, uh, their uh, reality will be put on the same equal footing. And what that does is, on the one hand, you know, the Palestinian one has to, uh, you know, justify his or her existence and, 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 and reality, and then goes back to behind the wall and behind the checkpoint and in an extremely um, oppressive and unequal and surveilled and, you know, uh, repressed reality. And the Israeli goes back to a, a very comfortable um, and, and, and a reality with all the freedoms and privileges and control. And, and that doesn't change because they just met. Um, so, in fact, these kind of programs, um, you know, even the, the the UK government at some point had done a, an evaluation that uh, they were not that um, efficient. They didn't see the impact or the efficiency of such programs. Um, Palestinians started rejecting them. I think the call for BDS, you know, in two thousand and five, and I think the the realization that there, you know, there can only be accountability. Uh, so that the, the reality changes, um, uh, made that these programs, Palestinians started refusing to go into this type of programs because, um, again, it would only make the Israelis feel good about themselves, um, while the Palestinians would not benefit anything at all. And so I think that, um, you know, I will give an example because, again, you know, in, in that conference where I was, um, uh, this this weekend, so it was all about women um, involvement in peace processes, etc., and a lot about the UN resolution, you know, the thirteen twenty five that 
talks about how women should be involved in peace processes. And there is this kind of initiative that has been promoted very heavily uh, here, which is called, you know, Women Wage Peace. And it's like this march of Israeli-Palestinian women. And of course, everyone loves, you know, like uh, people holding hands and, you know, building bridges and, and marching together. But what that does effectively, again, is equating the fact that a kid, uh, a Palestinian kid who was killed by an army that control his land, that control his water, that control his village, that control his movement, is equated to, in fact, a you know the, uh, a soldier who was killed on, on because he was put there by that system, and I think equating the two is very dangerous. And again, that kind of initiative um, that look you know very rainbow and very very good um, again make the international community feel good about themselves while not changing the structural um, uh, the structural system and the justice that that we live under. Yes, absolutely. So Yara, I want to talk to you. So Ines just talked about one example that she was experiencing at the international conference over the weekend. I want to talk to you about another initiative in a little more depth. So currently USAID is accepting applications for what it's calling its People to People Partnership for Peace Fund. A lot of peace there. Uh, so this People for People projects, they're a part of the Nita M. Lowy Middle East Partnership for Peace Act, or MEPA, which is supported by $250 million in congressional funding, U.S. congressional funding. The overall goal of MEPA, according to the USAID website, is to, quote, build the foundation for peaceful coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians and enable a sustainable two-state solution, unquote. You have written in Ashebeke and elsewhere about the problems with this program specifically. Can you please explain how this project, which claims to foster coexistence and peace building, actually perpetrates further violence against the Palestinians? So I think there's a few things that we, we have to unpack there, and it uses this in particular, um, Peace Fund uses a lot of language that and as rightly pointed out, makes you feel sort of warm and, and fuzzy inside, or at least for some people, it would make them feel like that. But if we take this, the notion of people to people first, um, this is a concept that really took off um, after the signing of the, the Oslo Accords in 1993. And it was framed uh, as this way to create a better understanding between the two peoples, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so it was this context of the, the, the Oslo atmosphere um, that sort of, you know, pushed forward this idea that dialogue and peace was possible. That was the context in which people to people sort of really took off. Now, of course, with hindsight, we can look back and, and critique this atmosphere. Um, and, and at the time, even at the time, there were a lot of opponents to uh, to the Oslo Accords and this sort of this peace framework. Um, an important piece to read is, of course, Edward Said's uh, The Morning After, in which he calls um, the Oslo Accords, uh, a Palestinian Versailles, and of words, the ultimate Palestinian capitulation. Um, but all this is to say that I think it's important to understand where this this people to people really took off from, and and the atmosphere in which it sort of um, it, it it grew out of. So um, 
you know, it, not just in Palestine, this notion of people to people, because it's it's beyond Palestine, it's a concept that's used globally. It emphasizes the importance of cooperation across borders um, for achieving uh, peace or lasting peace. Uh, and basically projects and initiatives within this framework um, are designed or uh, claim to, to promote uh, contacts, grassroots contacts, um, and interaction between people on different sides of a border. And one of the, the main assumptions of people to people is that if you put politics aside, people would just get on. Now, of course, that is an assumption that stems from white supremacy and colonialism, because most people of color, uh, most people under these forms of uh, racial oppression can't simply put aside politics. You know, they were born into politics. Their very existence is political. And so in Palestine, you know, what this calls for basically is for Palestinians to cooperate and reconcile with, with people and, and ent entities or institutions, or organizations, that either condone or are directly active in their colonization and occup occupation. Um, so, you know, this is not only is it incredibly prob problematic and unfair, it's actually, you know, on a human level, it's actually quite cruel. Um, now, people to people saw this uh, period of decline starting in the, the early 2000s. Um, and this was because of a variety of different factors, it included the outbreak of the Second Intifada, the demise of the so-called Israeli left, air quotes, um, and also importantly, the emergence of a renewed consensus on anti-normalization um, in Palestinian civil society, um, which was agreed upon in 2007. And I think maybe a bit later, we'll talk about what that consensus was. Um, but as you mentioned in your question, um, people to people is now again, once again, making a comeback. Um, and this uh, Nisaloe um, Middle East Partnership for Peace Act, uh, the abbreviation is, is MEPA, M-E-P-P-A, uh, was put forward to Congress um, um, by Nisaloe and Jeff Fortenberry. Um, uh, Nisaloe is, is uh, or was, I think they are no longer Congress. Um, members um but it was a bipartisan the point is it was a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation and what it did was it pledged uh over 250 million dollars over five years for two funds uh one specifically would be focusing on these peace and reconciliation projects between palestinians and israelis and at the time when it was announced we saw it um you know, being described as this move to restore aid to Palestinians after this long hiatus under the the Trump administration. And it was even, you know, being celebrated by some as bringing momentum to um, the otherwise stagnant uh, peace process. Um, now, the fund itself will be primarily uh, funded by the US, but the legislation also states that it's going to seek additional contributions for the fund from the international community, uh, presumably from the uh, Middle East, from the Arab regimes, which recently normalized um, with Israel. So just, you know, to conclude, the fund itself is really um, part of this attempt to obscure the fact that Israel needs to be held accountable um, and even obscure the US's complicity in aiding and abetting the Israeli regime. 
it operates within this framework that insists that, you know, it's the lack of cooperation, lack of dialogue, um, that are the main obstacles to, to peace between Palestinians and Israelis, rather than the, the reality, which is, of course, you know, the main obstacle to achieving peace is the Israeli regime's continuous uh, colonization of Palestinians for, for well over seven decades. So this is just the latest attempt um, to really feed into this, this very violent discourse, um, but in, in quite an insidious way by sort of diverting funds and trying to really uh, blackmail Palestinians and Palestinian organizations, or not maybe not blackmail, but pressuring them into engaging in these kinds of projects. Thank you for that. I'm not sure blackmail is an inappropriate, like I think it might be uh, akin to that because it's essentially saying, we'll give you funding not to provide services to Palestinians, not to help strengthen civil society, but to engage in these normalization projects that as you've been saying, as you've both been saying, essentially seeks to uh, silence any opposition or resistance to Israel's ongoing colonialism. So let's take a step further out and look at the regional dynamics um, and specifically the Abraham Accords. So the Abraham Accords, as most of our listeners know, is an agreement that was signed in 2020 that pledged to normalize relations initially between Israel, the UAE and Bahrain and later expanded to include Sudan and Morocco. Normalization, that term normalization for listeners who may not be familiar with the term refers to the idea of treating Israel as a normal state with all of the privileges of trade, diplomatic relations, et cetera, that are entailed, as opposed to treating it as a settler colonial or apartheid regime that should be subject to boycott, divestment, and sanctions. So staying with you, Yara, for a moment, uh, this Wednesday, March 1st, the Abrahamic Family House is scheduled to open to the public. It's a religious complex in Abu Dhabi containing a synagogue, a mosque, and a church. It was recently had a kind of soft opening a couple of weeks ago to much fanfare. Meanwhile, the Israeli weapons company Rafael recently opened up its first office in the UAE. Both are being celebrated as positive outcomes of the Abraham Accords. So what is wrong with the Abraham Accords as you see it? And how does normalization between Israel and the Arab states undermine Palestinians' quest for liberation? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Maha, when you put those two examples side by side. I think the former sort of provides a cover for the latter. The, you know, the, the opening of a sort of religious or cultural complex uh, provides a very sort of liberal facade and a cover for the reality um, of basically you know, what the Abraham Accords were truly about. And that was a, a set of agreements um, that brought together authoritarian governments to sign weapons deals and further intelligence sharing. Um, and and if you look at the, the parties involved, that's exactly what it was. And, and this wasn't as historic as people claimed. You know, the Israeli regime were claiming this as some kind of historic 
moment um, of peace deals between Israel and its uh, so-called neighbors. Um, but these countries were not at war with each other. Um, and there were, there's been a long history of uh, normalizing activities, that is to say, you know, ongoing relations between these Arab regimes and the Israeli regime. And they, it goes back, you know, a long way. You know, in the 1960s, uh, Morocco had uh, secret relations with the Mossad. And this, you know, even included allowing Mossad to open a small office in Rabat. Uh, the Israeli secret services also trained their Moroccan counterparts in anti-insurgent tactics to use against the Polisario, the Western Sahara Liberation Movement. Um, we then had, of course, the official peace agreements between Egypt and, and the Israeli regime and Jordan and the Israeli regime much later. Um, but back, you know, back to the Gulf, Qatar uh, became the first uh, state to de facto recognize the Israeli regime by establishing trade relations in 1996. Um, so all of this is to say, and, and more recently, we've seen sort of warming relations between the Israelis and the Saudis and the, the Israelis and uh, UAE. So all of this is to say that that Abraham Accords wasn't a shock, rather it's for Palestinians was an expected outcome of a long history of under the table and even over the table normalization. Um, but just as a sort of a tangential point, I think it's important to note that these normalization deals do not reflect popular sentiment. And we know that. Um, we know that because of frequent street mobilizations of, of peoples in these countries um, who protest in spite of, you know, authoritarian crackdowns. And we also know this from even from empirical data. There was a, a survey conducted um, in 2020 by the Arab Center for Research and Policy. And it revealed that in Kuwait, in Qatar, in Morocco, um, opposition to normalization with the Israeli regime was at 88%. Um, in Saudi Arabia, I think only 6% were in favor of it. And, and some other countries, um, it's they're actually trying to criminalize uh, normalization with the, the Israeli regime. So what we see here is that, of course, you know, these regimes don't reflect uh, popular sentiment. Now, you asked, you know, or rather, I think we need to think about what this all means for the Palestinian liberation struggle. And, and one of the crucial things I think we need to note about the Abraham Accords is that what was different is that it ushers in sort of this very kind of brazen normalization, one that sort of deepens um, diplomatic, military and security coordinate, uh, coordination with the Israeli regime and flaunting it publicly. Um, and I think the, the normalizing cultural events, like the ones you mentioned, the publicity stunts, the social media campaigns between uh, Emiratis and Israelis, dem, dem really demonstrate this sort of brazen shift. And I think this differs massively uh, from the normalization that was established as a result of the 1979 Egyptian and 1994 Jordanian peace agreements. Um, the the Jordanians and the Egyptian Egyptians continue to downplay normalization. Um, they they talk about it as simply a matter of ending the state of war with a bordering entity. Um, and and this is a particularly important point for Jordan because of course it hosts this large Palestinian refugee population. Um, so the potential for popular mobilization around the Palestinian struggle does have the potential to have the spillover effect and could generate 
this wider scrutiny of both the Egyptian and Jordanian leadership. And so I think it compels them almost to keep their normalization uh, to, to a discrete level. And I think it really reflects the, the fragility of their hold on power. So I think the trend is arguably that, you know, the state's ability to normalize so brazenly and publicly with the Israeli regime runs in tandem with the strength and stability of the authoritarianism to which its people are subjected. And I think this is what makes the Abraham Accords so worrying, you know, the coming together of of these regional autocratic regimes to agree on these allyships based on on weapons deals, on surveillance technology exchanges, on security coordination. I think this really ushers in a very frightening future for for the people of the region. And, and I think with this in mind, you know, opposing these normalization deals, opposing the Abraham Accords is, is no longer only about the struggle for Palestinian liberation, but also the struggle for a better um, uh, and freer future for all the people uh, in the Middle East. And I think this is something that many Palestinians insist on, that the struggle uh, for Palestinian liberation has to go in hand in hand uh, with the struggle for liberation of all all Arab people under all of these despotic regimes. Yeah, thank you for that. I think the the point that you made about the Abraham Accords and the push for the normalization going hand in hand with greater authoritarianism and crackdown on their own citizens is a really important point to think about, particularly as U.S. administrations both Democrat and Republican continue to push for expanding and deepening these normalization ties. And particularly currently under the Biden administration that on the one hand claims to center human rights and center democracy in its foreign policy, yet by pushing for normalization is actually deepening and entrenching the opposite, is deepening and entrenching authoritarianism, violence against, uh, government violence against their own citizens, not just Palestinians, but also the Abraham Accords really undermining freedom, democracy, and human rights for all Arabs in the region. And this is something that I think a lot of the peace discourse and policymakers miss when they um, emphasize the Abraham Accords. So thank you for that, Yara. Um, Ines, I wanna ask you about another specific project. So USAID also recently granted $3 million to a group called EcoPeace, which brings together Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordanians to combat water scarcity in the Jordan Valley. This organization was praised by New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman as an example of innovative people thinking beyond the zero-sum calculations of the conflict to tackle climate change. But critics, such as yourself, criticize such projects and say they amount to greenwashing. As someone who works a lot on questions of environmental justice in Israel, Palestine and the region, can you please explain to us what greenwashing is and why such joint environmental projects are problematic? Thank you. First, I would say no one ever should quote Thomas Friedman ever anymore, (laughs) this person. Should really not be seen as in existence for uh, any meaningful comments. Um, so be, I think before going into to the specific example of eco peace and greenwashing, um, I think it's it's we need to really look at the economic dimension. And I think the what goes hand in hand with authoritarianism is neoliberal capitalism that has been 
promoted by the aid framework. And I think part of the why USAID is going back to people-to-people -people projects is also because of the failure of what they've been trying before, right, in the aid uh, framework, which is the state building for the Palestinians. So for many years, um, international donors have given, uh, you know, uh, aid and monies so that to build Palestinian institutions and to try and build the Palestinian economy, but all of that in a model that continued the subjugation of the Palestinian economy and the Palestinian Authority to Israel. So what effectively all of that aid and, and projects have done is only entrenching Israel's uh, domination of Israel's of Palestinian economy and having the Palestinian people captive to that economy. And so what essentially that that that, that did is one, they realized that it's either they would go into uh, having to fund projects that would question the status quo, the systemic status quo. So if you fund a water infrastructure project, you know, it needs to be in Area C. But the Israelis never uh, agreed to have water passing infrastructure in Area C. And the international community was not ready to push Israel to do that. So any meaningful project that was going beyond just uh, empowering uh, Palestinian institutions and then therefore uh, actually empowering corruption and and empowering just um, uh, you know more of the um, uh, more of the of the of this captive economy would need that that systemic change that the donors didn't want to. So people to people is a good cop out in the sense that oh you know we'll we'll remain with civil society to help in order to sort of you know make uh, you know pretend that we're creating that that added value for people. And so normalization also with the with the uh with with the Emirates and so on is is, is also part of that uh, model. So for example, one of the USAID uh you know offer uh, with these new programs and also the UAE being involved is you know all around startups uh and 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 promoting investments uh that are also promoted as good for Palestinians these investments will be good for Palestinians effectively what it means is you know have cheap Palestinian labor for the Israeli economy so Israel controls all the resources it controls the capital it controls um the wealth but it has a captive population the workers uh the startup tech workers or the construction workers that you know go uh, to Israel and, and and work, and that is seen as as good for Palestinians. And so that that kind of narrative is also fueled into um, the normalization and people to people discourse. Uh, that eventually Palestinians are happy to you know work in settlements or work in in Israel. And so uh, I think it's the same logic with the environmental projects, right? Because um, instead of looking at the structural problem of uh, the natural resources control and sovereignty. Um, these projects uh, effectively maintain the status quo. So what Ecopeace does is it will take, you know, a project in the around the Jordan River that is clearly endangered and it has been uh, completely over pumped and overused. But by whom, right? Israel has literally annexed uh, most of the Jordan Valley with settlements that are drying up 
the, the Jordan River and the Palestinians don't control uh, the water. Effectively over the, the Oslo Accords say that Palestinians will just receive a bulk of water uh, that the Israelis uh, basically sell to the Palestinians and it's our own water. Um, the projects that Ecopis you know, is promoting are not questioning that dynamic. What they're doing is they're basically saying, okay, uh, well, Palestinians, you'll, you'll buy a bit of the water. Uh, the Israelis will manage it better and give some to you. So it's not, it, it's, that's greenwashing because in the, that means that in the, um, in, in the pretense of fighting climate change, it's just maintaining Palestinians under that uh, deep economic, political, and uh, environmental domination. And another example that's very clear, for example, you know, very concrete for people to understand is Israel has completely destroyed the Palestinian agriculture. Uh, and so Palestine, Palestine was a, you know, had a deep, um, I think, big agriculture, uh, you know, culture and, and traditions. Um, today, what happens is that um, eventually Isra Israel and interna with international projects too, have promoted the um, the growing of cucumber in, in in the West Bank that is highly demanding on water, whereas Israel is uh, growing the tomatoes the tomatoes that are uh, much less uh, needy in terms of water. And so now the Israelis they sell us the tomatoes and we grow cucumber with the water that we don't have that we already buy from the Israelis that needs more water and then we sell them the cucumber. Um, so, so that's the absurdity of the system we live in, and and that, and that uh, projects like uh, EcoPeace uh, are definitely not questioning and indeed entrenching. And, and so that's greenwashing and it's perpetuating that violence. And I think that economic, like that economic structure, also is very deeply entrenched into the normalization discourse because whatever is sold is sold as good for the Palestinians. Great, thank you for that, Ines. So what I'm hearing you saying, and, and Yara, I heard you um, say this a bit too about the regional dynamics, um, but specifically about EcoPeace and these MEPA projects in particular, is that regardless of what they're being presented as, or regardless of what the stated goals are, the actual material effects on the ground on Palestinians is to deepen Palestinian economic dependency on Israel, to, to perpetuate the unequal structures of leverage and, and um, access to land, to water, to infrastructure. And in the name of seeking to advance peace or to advance, you know, to, to move past the conflict isn't really fundamentally doing anything to change that balance of power. So people can have good intentions if they want to, but without addressing the actual material um, conditions on the ground in ways that actually change that balance of power, you end up perpetuating the occupation, perpetuating the oppression. Do I have that right? Okay, so in our last sort of set of questions, I want to think about uh, alternative frameworks. So we've been talking today a lot about how the peace framework 
seize dialogue, normalization, and joint projects as a way to overcome the presumed hostility between Israelis, Palestinians, and Arabs. But a focus, as you've both very um, eloquently stated, I think, a focus on dialogue and normalization misreads the core problem that we're dealing with. It's not a lack of understanding or a lack of cooperation on both sides. Rather, the core problem has to do with these structures of oppression, whether it's settler colonialism, occupation, discrimination, exile, that overwhelmingly oppresses Palestinians, not Israelis. And so the solution has to be one that dismantles these structures of oppression. At the same time, we all know that personal connections can be powerful. And there are several questions in the Q&A that speak to this question that I'm going to pose to you. We know that personal connections can be powerful. We know that they're often an important way to expand our understanding about people that we may not know much about. And engaging in dialogue with people that we disagree with can give us not only a better opportunity to understand the other side, but also a better opportunity to better articulate our own positions. And I know personally, I've benefited over the years from having conversations with Israelis, with Zionists who have challenged my thinking and have pushed me to clarify my own positions. And so I imagine many of our questioners, not just the ones who post questions, but others as well are asking, well, if dialogue projects don't work and joint projects don't work and normalization projects don't work, well, then what does work? What should we be doing? So Ines, what is your group, the Palestinian Institute for Public Diplomacy, tell people, whether it's NGOs or policymakers or others, who come to you and say, we want to help change the political conditions on the ground. We want to help ease the, the oppression that Palestinians are facing. What should we do? So what do you tell them? What should they be doing? Um, in one word, accountability. Uh, I think the, the people to people uh, and peace building frameworks are, um, I think, shielding Israel from accountability. Um, you know, when we think about women fighting for their rights, voting rights, etc., cetera, um, it's not by just a, a dialogue with the men that they uh, had, you know, that they fulfilled their rights. They had to fight. They had to struggle for their rights. They had to, to confront. And the men had to be put, you know, to be pressured. So, uh, you know, until Israel has uh, complete impunity, until there is zero cost uh, for its military occupation, its domination over the Palestinians, things won't change. Um, that is what will change the structural power dynamics. And then after we can think about what kind of projects do we want, what kind of um, just future we can build. Um, and I think at some point one day, because this is also something I, I often hear, right? Of course, one day there will need to be uh, reparative justice and possibly some form of uh, a dialogue, but that needs to be after uh, the rights of the Palestinians to self-determination um, and some form of reparative justice have been put in place uh, and we're definitely not there yet. So. Um, that's what we uh, what we tell. And I think an another thing that I think is often um, misunderstood, and I just also wanted to maybe clarify is um, often I'm told, well, 
you know, but if if this if these projects don't exist anymore, then the Israelis don't hear from the Palestinians and they don't meet the Palestinians. First, um, obviously, this is again a choice by the uh, Israeli system to have completely ethnically cleansed uh, uh, and fragmented and isolated and ghettoized the Palestinians on their own home, homeland. Uh, so that obviously Israelis don't see Palestinians anymore and that's part of the injustice. Second, I'm not against uh, the Israeli public needing some education about uh, our struggle and about the reality, but that's not for us to do. Um, just like a lot of black people say that it's not for them to educate the white people about racism. So there are organizations, associations, you know, and there might be more that should, you know, exist in uh, Israel and the Jewish diaspora as well to look at the Israeli public and try to educate them. So we have like uh, association like Zohrot who's trying to educate about the Nakba and so on. And, and their work is, is great, but it's for them to do. It's not for us to be asked to educate our own oppressor about uh, the reality. And so, so I think that's an important point because often it's also one of the excuse to, to I think, defend this kind of peace building uh, project when it's not the same. Great, thank you for that, Ines. Yara, I, I wanna end with you. So Ines just said that we need to actually start with the move towards reparative justice uh, and before we have dialogue, that the dialogue comes after we move towards accountability, that we move towards uh, decolonization, that we move towards justice. So is there any value to having dialogue between Palestinians and Israelis at this point? Can we have dialogue that's in conjunction with moving towards justice? And if so, what would that look like? And if not, what do you think would be a better approach? So I think, Mahan, firstly, I think there's, you know, difference to, uh, there's a big difference in, you know, having a chat with a self-proclaimed um, Zionist in order to, to learn and strengthen your own arguments and engaging in a project or initiative, um, a normalizing project or initiative, which in turn can be used to harm the Palestinian struggle. And I think as Palestinians, especially those of us with public and international platform, we have to hold ourselves accountable to, to our people. And with that in mind, I, I think it's important that we turn to the BDS movement's definition of normalization, which was defined and adopted by consensus um, by the largest coalition on Palestinian civil society. Tatabiya um, in Arabic um, is normalization. It means dealing with or presenting um, something that is inherently abnormal, such as oppression and injustice, um, as if it was normal. Normalization with the Israeli regime is this idea of making occupation, apartheid, settler colonialism seem normal. And so countering normalization is resisting that oppression and its uh, and its structures. So the specific definition uh, of normalization is, uh, according to this BDS consensus, is the participation in, in any project, initiative or activity, local or international, that brings together on the same platform 
Palestinians and or Arabs and Israelis and does not meet the following two conditions. And here I'm quoting directly. These, number one, the Israeli side publicly recognizes the UN affirmed inalienable rights of the Palestinian people, which are set out in the 2005 BDS call, um, which I'm sure we can send the, share the link for. And number two, the joint activity constitutes a form of co-resistance against the Israeli regime of occupation, settler colonialism and apartheid. Now, of course, there are other definitions and understandings of normalization uh, among Palestinians, but this is the one that the majority of Palestinian civil society agrees upon and abides by. And so, you know, it, it remains completely mind baffling to me that there's this obsession by the international community that insists that Palestinians need to dialogue and sit down and have a chit chat um, in complete disregard of Palestinian consensus on the matter and with no recognition of what that means for Palestinians, the oppressed. Basically, they're asking Palestinians to dialogue with people, organizations that don't believe in their fundamental rights and or are completely um, complicit in their oppression. And I think it's I think it's absurd. And I think, you know, as Ines mentioned, the time for dialogue comes after apartheid falls and the structures of settler colonialism are being dismantled. Now, really, it, you know, is the time for resistance. But perhaps I can, you know, lay it out in simpler terms, you know, if let's take a domestic abuse situation, you know, if you describe it as one of a disagreement between two partners, that is violent because you're denying the reality of the victim. And in a similar way, when you fail to recognize the Israeli regime uh, as settler colonialism, inflicting apartheid, among many other things on the Palestinian people, that is violence. You wouldn't ask in that situation for the two partners to you know, sit down and have a chat. Um, and I think the problem is, is that people don't realize because there's a very pleasing facade, uh, a very liberal facade to these kinds of dialogue projects, people don't realize that, that often they provide cover and impunity um, for the Israeli regime, um, rather than focusing on, on justice and on accountability. Thank you, Yara. So the word that I hear, heard you both say uh, multiple times, and I think bears repeating, is the question of accountability. And I think that's where the, the lines it, it ought to be drawn. So accountability for on both sides, both Israeli accountability for their historic and ongoing projects of settler colonial violence against Palestinians through normal through occupation, through uh, apartheid, etc., but also Palestinian accountability to Palestinians. And one of the one of the problems of the normalization projects, as both of you are describing, and, and a critique that I agree with is that calling on Palestinians to engage in these public dialogue and normalization projects undermines the accountability of, the Pal of Palestinian individuals, especially those with public platforms. It undermines their accountability to their own people. And so if Palestinian civic society has said, we don't approve of engaging in these kinds of normalization projects because they perpetuate the occupation, and then you go and do it because you've been asked to or you've been you know, pressured to or what have you, it creates divisions within Palestinian society that further undermines the cause for liberation. And I think that part often gets overlooked in the international community, the intra-Palestinian dynamic that's at play and that's at stake 
when we're constantly being told to engage in these dialogue projects. Uh, before I wrap up, do either of you, Yara or Ines, have any final uh, thoughts or comments to, to add? Yeah, I would just um, also uh, caution about one of the impact that it has uh, in uh, invisibilizing and dehumanizing a lot of the Palestinian voices. Part of what's problematic is that, uh, and we've seen this with the a Blinken visit, right? And in some, uh, they claim that they met with Palestinian civil society. And I think like part of what it creates is that some Palestinian interlocutors that respond to, I think that very problematic framework that we talked about for an hour are seen as the valid interlocutors um, when others who decide to confront uh, the occupation and and defend themselves or, or really have, you know, a more confrontational approach are invisibilized or criminalized and, you know, um, treated as uh, terrorists or anti-Semites. And we know all of these smearing that exists. And I think that creates also a very dangerous, um, like it's a, it's a complicity in itself because it also creates rifts within the Palestinian movement and it also pick and choose who's the good Palestinian and who's not the good Palestinian, right? And I think it's very dangerous. And so I think this is also why um, these kind of frameworks and projects uh, should be questioned. Thank you. Yara, any final thoughts? Just really to build on what Ines said that, you know, these you know, we talked about uh, anti-normalization as a sort of uh, being held by Palestinian civil society as a broad consensus. And so I think we really, you know, have to interrogate who are taking, who's taking part in these sort of dialogue initiatives and the fact that they're not representative of um, of, of Palestinians and sort of general public Palestinian uh, perception and, and opinions. And, um, and I think, you know, I think there are a lot of um, um, insidious um, efforts behind these projects. And I think, unfortunately, many Palestinians are sort of used as uh, as covers or as tokens um, to carry out those uh, insidious um, uh, uh, goals. Yeah, I think the tokenization of the so-called good Palestinian is another dimension to all of this that is um, very much needs to be interrogated and, and questioned, as you said. So with that, I want to thank uh, Yara and Inas for sharing your time and analysis today, and to thank you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Our final installment for the Learning and Unlearning Palestine series will be building very nicely actually on this one. It's titled Ally, Allyship and the Fight for Palestinian Liberation. It'll feature Ashabaka's US Policy Fellow, Tariq Kanishawa, in conversation with Saleh Hijazi and Nadia Tonnous. That webinar will be held on Wednesday, March 8th, and you can check out uh, the FMAP website and the Ashabaka website for more information about that one. Also, please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, and the Ashebaka website, www.al-shebaka.org, for resources related to this webinar and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel.
And please make sure that you are subscribed to FMAP's Occupied Thoughts podcast and Ashabaka's Rethinking Palestine podcast, hosted by Yara Hawari, to stay up to date. You can find us all on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Mahana Sar signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied Thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you. 